Let's join together in prayer. Oh God, you are holy. Father, we thank you as our gracious and loving Father that you sent your Son and that your Son overcame the sin that so easily entangles us. Lord, thank you for the victory that was beheld by your Son and that is held today as he reigns and sits next to you. Father, we just pray this morning that your word would break our hearts, that we would not be hardened by the sin that seems to creep in our heart. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move and that, Lord God, we would truly worship you in your holiness. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please uh, take one of these blue cards. It's called a connection card. And we would love to know that you're with us worshiping today. Perhaps you're a first or second time guest. You haven't filled out one of these yet. Please do that. And you can put that in the offering plate in a moment. Or you can just take that to the connection center on your way out. Just to the left a little bit, you'll see a connection center out there. You can turn that in there. And also we have prayer request cards. So please fill that out. We'll be faithful to pray for you. We meet every Tuesday morning as a staff and we pray for all those needs, so please uh, fill that out, take advantage of that. Well, as we are in uh, Hebrews 3, we're going to be uh, learning once again about a people who um, forgot God's ways and were right on the verge of uh, losing out on His blessing. Hmm. Reminds me of me. Amen? Reminds me of you. Instead of an amen, it's an oh my. Right? And because it, this is our condition, we're always on the verge of, of forgetting how holy, how good God is. And those are words you're going to hear a lot today as we sing. Focus on His holiness, His perfection. He's never going to make a mistake. Focus on His goodness. He's never going to do us bad. Amen? Let's sing together. Oh, 
Let's learn a new song today that reminds us of just how holy a God we serve.
Lord God, we reverently come before you now, and we want to continue this worship in our giving. Um, Lord, the bottom line is uh, we know that uh, you don't have a whole person until you uh, have our resources, uh, and, and, and that's really the wrong way of saying it, <laughs> until we give you back your resources, uh, because it all belongs to you anyway. And so, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to be cheerful, generous givers. We thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Back about the turn of the century, uh, 2000 that is, uh, a songwriter, a Christian songwriter named Don Moen wrote a great song that uh, churches sang for probably 10 or 20 years. And, uh, and so uh, we always started that song with a, a phrase like this, God is good all the time, and you would say, all the, all the time. All right. Well, about 20 years later, another great song about God's goodness has come to us, and let's, uh, let's sing that today. Running after me, sing it, church. Your goodness. 
When I take the shortcut up here, you know you're in trouble, right? <laughs> I'm wanting to get up here fast. The hymn writer said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And we all sense uh, the truth of that song at times in life. And I'm thankful for the songs that <clears throat> we have sung today because they remind us of the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord and we should all go back to those times in life, <clears throat> those moments, uh, those monuments where God is working. And we think back on those days from the day of salvation until, until where you're sitting today of, of God's faithfulness. <clears throat> in my life, music has played a huge part of that when you reflect on psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that have impacted your life. I remember as a 16-year-old boy... 16 to 17 years of age, uh, my favorite singer was Larnell Harris. And I'm dating myself. Some of you have never heard of him. But he's 76 years old, I think, now, and he can still sing like you wouldn't believe. We've actually thought about trying to get him here at our church, and we may do that in the future. <clears throat> but he came out with an album called From a Servant's Heart. And the words of that song still speak to my heart today. As a matter of fact, when I'm prone to wonder, 
away from the Lord, this is a song and a phrase that comes to mind, a part of that song, uh, and I'll tell you what that is in a moment. It's the chorus, but listen to some of the verses. Your love endured the cross, despising all the shame. That afternoon when midnight fell, your suffering cleared my name. And that sin-swept hill became the open door to paradise because you paid so high a price. That's the name of the song. You paid much too high a price. Listen to verse 2. Your grace inspires my heart to rise above the sin and all the earthly vanity that seeks to draw me in. I want to tell this jaded world of love that truly saved my life, a love that paid such a high price. The chorus goes like this. You paid much too high a price for me. Your tears, your blood and pain. To have my soul just stirred at times but never truly changed. You deserve a fiery love that won't ignore your sacrifice because you paid much too high a price. Do you have songs, scripture that reminds you that they, they prod your heart to go back to first things, to loving the Lord. I hope you do. That's just one example uh, of what we need to think on and hear. This text is about God's mercies and provisions in the past. And what this text is designed to do is to lead us to trust and hope in the Lord for the future. Don't stop there. And it also brings about obedience in the present. Now think on that. If you have really been a recipient of God's ultimate provision, which according to Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, is the person and work of Christ. Are y'all with me? Now with the Israelites coming out of the wilderness or in the wilderness wanderings, they saw all kind of manifest mercies and provisions right before their very eyes. But the Bible says God was disgusted with that generation and they did not enter his rest. Why? Because those provisions and blessings did not lead them to faithfulness in the present. They did not obey the Lord. Thus they did not know the ways of God. Thus they did not know God. So for us today listening to this in 2024 removed many many years from the writing uh, of, the, of the writer of Hebrews or from this text of Scripture. The same is true to us today. If you've been a recipient of the mercies and provisions of the Lord, and in particular, the work of Christ, remember chapter 1, verse 2. He's the final word spoken by the Father. Chapter 2, verse 1. How can we neglect so great a salvation? Chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus. If you've moved away from him, And you've stepped out of that provision and you're just wondering and you're not at all concerned about obeying the Lord. Then the threat is for you this morning. The threat of the text is for you. And for believers, it's an encouragement for us to look at those provisions. 
and those blessings. And know that our God can be trusted in the future. And that particular trust leads you to a life of obedience. Why? Because you believe God. Now, I've pretty much preached the sermon, but I've got a lot more to say, right? Okay, Luther, the reformer, Martin Luther in the 1500s, wrote a book called The Freedom of the Christian. And check these words out. Here's what he says. Listen close. Faith honors him whom it trusts with the most reverent and highest regard since it considers him truthful and trustworthy. There is no other honor equal to the estimate of truthfulness and righteousness with which we honor him whom we trust. The very highest worship of God is this, that you ascribe to him truthfulness, righteousness, and whatever else should be ascribed to the one who is to be trusted. When this is done, the soul consents to his will, it hallows his name, and it allows itself to be treated according to the good pleasure of the Lord, for in it he is clinging to the promises of God, and he doesn't doubt that the Lord is true, just, wise, and will do, dispose, and provide all things well. Is not such a soul most obedient to God in all things by this kind of faith? What commandment? Is there that such obedience then has not fulfilled? Here's Luther's point. It's very clear. There's no way to honor God greater than to trust him and take him at his word. And that's what Hebrews 3 is about. The corollary to this is there's no greater insult to God and no greater way to show contempt to God than not to believe him and not to take him at his word. And this is the writer's teaching. This is what he's getting to in Hebrews chapter 3. All of their grumbling, remember that last week? And their murmuring and their complaining and their lack of belief in the Lord. The fact that they didn't trust him at all is, of course, a result that they did not believe God. They didn't believe in his ways. They did not believe that he was faithful. So today, the writer is wanting to strengthen our faith. He wants to bolster our confidence in God. And on the other hand, he wants us to run away from any form of unbelief that will destroy your confidence in Jesus. Young people, you need to hear this. Don't let anything move you to unbelief and destroy your confidence in Christ. Nothing. You can't let anything divert your attention away from Jesus. Why? Because he's the only mediator between God and man. He's the only one that can save you. He's the only one that can give you a righteousness wherein you have uh, an innocent, pardoned position before the Lord. So, remember the, out, the outline we've been preaching through? We uh, have talked about make every effort to hear God's word today. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Point number two. Number three, do not be like those who formerly heard. And then today, learn from the consequences of their sin. For one more trip. Ready? Through this warning text, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. All right, here's the consequences. Therefore, I was provoked with, notice the specifics, that generation specifically. And said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, 
They shall not enter my rest. So learn from the consequences of their sins. And that's what chapter verse chapter 3, 10 and 11 speaks to us. Now, have you ever heard of an AB, AB structure? You know, sometimes we read and we'll see an ABC and then it'll turn around and give you another ABC. Well, this is an AB, AB. It's real neat. It's really easy to follow. Sin, A, consequence, B. Sin, A, consequence, B, right? That's what the text is going to tell us. So it's real easy. Their first sin was they tested God. And the consequence was they were held accountable because they refused to believe. That was the consequence. God was provoked with anger. And then you're going to see the second sin. They always went astray in their hearts, and thus they missed out on the promise of God. Is this serious? I think it's very serious, so we need to listen. Now, first, under the consequences of sin, they were held accountable for refusing to believe. Why is that the case? Well, there's a turning of the tables, and I mentioned this last week, where God in Scripture is said many times to test his people, but yet we're not allowed to test him. So it is always God's prerogative to test his people. Our sovereign king has a right to test us anytime he pleases. You, can, you probably won't get to all of these texts of Scripture as I read them, but don't worry about it. Just listen so I can make sure you understand. Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. In one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 8, of which Jesus quotes, in chapter 8, verse 2, And you shall remember that the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, does 40 sound familiar? It's in our text, right? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, to see whether you would obey his commandments or not. Same chapter, verse 16, here's the Lord's prerogative. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. God has a right to test anybody he pleases. It's clear from his word. However, it is forbidden for us to test God. In the same book, Deuteronomy 6, verse Verse 16, listen to the Bible. Here's what the Word of God says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As you tested him and Messiah, Messiah. and who's going to quote this particular verse? The Lord Jesus in his temptation is going to quote this temptation. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Yet in Israel's history, Hebrews tells us that's exactly what they did. Read Exodus 17, Numbers 14, Psalm 78. And with that being said, go over to Psalm 78, and we're going to be there often through the sermon, especially through this particular point. Here's something else that's said in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 records the many mercies and provisions and redemptive things that God gave the people of Israel, yet in all the giving of those mercies, they did not trust him. Listen to Psalm 78, 17 and 18. 
Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness. They grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. Y'all getting this? They put him to the test and did not remember redemptive grace. Verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the most holy God and did not keep his testimonies. They turned the tables and they tested God. To test God is to challenge his authority. To test God is to rebel against him. To test God is to question his character. It's to question his integrity. And I know, I read this, and I hear it, and you've heard it, It seems to be somewhat popular today for people to quote-unquote be mad at God and tell him off. You better be careful. If you read your Bibles carefully, I know when we read the book of Job, we say, whoop, Job, you're pushing a line there. You you, You may should back off that a little bit. You might not have should have said it exactly like that. But here's the reminder. The Bible never commends us to question God's character. It never gives us the sense that we should suspiciously look at him and question his integrity. To test God is, folks, to forget his kindness. It's to forget his provisions. To test God is to rebel against his present kindness. To test God in one way or another is to command the Lord God, who is completely trustworthy, to meet you according to your standards. It's to question him. It is to test God in one way or another. It's to command that he proves himself trustworthy, not by his standards, not by biblical standards, but by your standards. So it's never morally right to put God to the test. And so it is the ultimate of ingratitude and unbelief and disobedience to test God. So the Israelites had forgotten. Uh, as Psalm 78, they, they've forgotten past redemption. They had forgotten past provisions. Had God demonstrated his ability to care for them? Well, absolutely. In 40 years, their shoes never wore out. Forget Nike, Reebok, whatever else. I mean, he provided stuff for them that never wore out. He always kept his word. He was committed to these people in their rebellion for 40 years. Had they seen his work? Yeah, this text says it. And Psalm 78 says it. They had seen it over and over again, yet they refused to bank their hope in the living God. They did not, they looked at the promises of God, yet it did not compel them to faith and obedience. Now, Psalm 78, verse 22, note what it says. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Now, do y'all think that the Israelites believed that God existed? Yes. So this verse does not mean that they were atheists, that they were philosophical atheists. They didn't doubt God's existence. They doubted his truthfulness and his reliability. That's what they doubted. They didn't trust in the Lord's salvation. They looked at what he did. They looked at what he had accomplished, what he was doing in the future or present. 
They heard his word, and they gave God a no. They gave God a vote of no confidence, and this is the ultimate insult to a God who is absolutely perfect, absolutely trustworthy in every single way. What greater contempt of God than not to believe His promise? Think about that for a moment. There's nothing more wicked than to say, I heard what you had to say. I read what you have said. I've seen your works, and I conclude that I do not believe you at all. And instead, I believe more what I say and what I want to do. And don't make that Old Testament mistake and say to yourself, well, the Lord ought to have more mercy on us because they saw way more than we see today. Don't make that mistake. Jesus even says at one time, they had Moses, and they still didn't listen. You've got Jesus. You stand in the shadow of the cross. You actually have God's final word. And as we go through Hebrews, you're going to find out that the judgment is worse on those who know more. And you know more. You you have greater responsibility because you've heard. You live on this side of the cross. So, they were not in a better place. You're not in a better place. You've heard. You're in the better place, right? You've heard. So, do you think Moses was any more believable than God's word? Absolutely not. We can be just as guilty of putting God to the test, having heard the word of God again and again and again, having seen his faithfulness over and over again. And here's the consequence. See it? Provoked. God was angered. They were held accountable for their sin. The idea here is not God saying Israelites will be Israelites. Anybody ever raise kids? Guys, does it ever just make you a little bit angry? Ticked a little bit when the kids borrow one of your tools? And then the chainsaw rides around in the back of the truck for about three weeks? Laugh because they're guilty. Oh, my kids are hanging their heads right now. because, Right? Now, this is not the understanding of what the word is getting to here. I mean, we might get a little upset about that and say, Boy, I'm going to knock you out if you keep putting my chainsaw on the back of your truck and riding it around for week after week. You know where you got it. Put it back. We, and then we say, well, kids will be kids. Well, that's not what's going on here. The idea... Here is that God was sorely angry and deeply offended. The Christian Standard Bible, when it gives us Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, it says that the Lord was disgusted with that generation. So the Hebrew word has two roots to it in in that sense. One is a loathing, incensed hatred. God's holy hatred, though, is not like yours. We fly off the handle. Off the handle, he never does. When he's provoked to anger, it's principled. It's measured. And it's in direct proportion to the crime. Why? Because he's holy. He's right all the time. So don't think for a moment, well, God doesn't have a right to get angry. Well, this is a different word. Uh, this, it's not like you. This is principled, measured anger. And he's responding according to his character. The sin, they tested God. The consequence, God was furious, provoked by that generation. 
that generation saw the ten plagues. That generation walked on dry ground through a parted Red Sea walled to the right and left of their hands. That generation celebrated redemption by singing the song of Miriam. That generation saw God come down on Mount Sinai and write the law of God on two tablets, ten words. They saw miracle after miracle, heard oracle after oracle, watched the faithfulness of God over and over again. Again, Psalm 78 catalogs all those redemptive ways that they actually saw. Here's the consequence of their sin. Let it be clear. God's anger is incited because his character is impugned. What's the most important thing to God in all the universe? Hate to burst your bubble, but it's not you. Never has been, never will be. It's not you. What is the most important thing to our God in all the universe? I'm glad you asked. Psalm, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah. You need to read this. Listen to me as I read it or see it yourself. Isaiah chapter 48. Verse 9. Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. Y'all just listen to the strength of this. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned, how shall my glory, my glory, I will not give to another. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. I don't hear the pages turning. You guys don't know where that is, do you? Turn right. A couple of books. You'll land there. Ezekiel, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. Y'all getting this? I'm about to do something, but it's not for your sake, but it's for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord our God, when through you I vindicate the holiness of my name before their eyes. I'm, I'm telling you something, folks. When the character of God is impugned, I-M-P-U-G-N-E-D, when that happens, Katie, bar the door. When it's about his character and his great name and his fame and his glory. And God is most committed to his glory and his name. The most important thing to God is his character, his reputation, and the manifestation of those attributes in his glory. So to that generation, he says, my wrath is incited and my anger provoked. My promises would not be believed. My name would not be trusted. I sent forth my word and it, it meant absolutely, absolutely nothing to you. My lordship over you meant nothing to you. My authority meant nothing. My mercies meant nothing. They trampled it all underfoot to their own opinions. Was, was Martin Luther right? 
You better believe it. There's nothing more offensive to God than to say to him by words or actions, I do not trust you. Now, even humanly, that hurts, doesn't it? Somebody can say to you, preacher, I don't like that tie. Furthermore, you're dressed like a moron. You can say all kinds of things like that to me. And I'll be good with that. But if you look me in the eye and say, you know what, I just don't trust you. You're from the south. You're from Georgia. Furthermore, you're from Bowman, Georgia. You only have 800 people that live there. So I'm telling you, I don't trust you. Now, here's what we know. We're fallen sinners. And there may be a right for you to say that to me. Because I'm a good-for-nothing, rotten sinner saved by grace through faith. And you are too. But just think about this for a moment. That we would actually look at a sovereign God who is trustworthy and perfect and has an absolutely perfect track record. He cannot lie, the Bible says. He is perfect in every single way. He is completely infallible in all his ways and in his utter wickedness and contempt to say anything that would impugn his character. That's what this is saying. It incited his wrath. Anybody want those consequences? I don't. All right, that's A, sin, B, consequence. Number two, they missed out on God's promise. Chapter 3, verse 11. Well, down in verse 10, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said to them, They always go astray in their hearts. There's the sin. First sin, test. Next consequence, provoked. Next sin, they have, they have gone astray. They've not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Did you know that the same stuff that was in them is in us? Have y'all thought about that? Listening to this sermon? So much for the evolutionary process that man is getting better and better. Which we know that's all bogus. Now the problem is with the people of Israel or ourselves... It's not just that we've had a bad example before us. Are we, if we just had more education, we'd be okay. Well, if you just put us in a little bit better environment, and now we can say the Israelites may not have had the best environment in the world. However, uh, God gave them everything they could ever ask for those 40 years. The, problem, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Are y'all listening? How did they go, to, go astray? In their heart. And it's not that pumping instrument inside either. It's the seat of the emotions. It's who you are. Right? So, they went astray in their hearts. When the heart strays, young people, life strays. When the heart strays, life strays. If your heart goes astray, your life won't stay on track. Now, does the word always speak to y'all in that text? They always hear this. There's hope for me right there, right? Because I look at that and it's always, I'm like, Lord, I'm good. I'm not always going astray. But just think of the strength of that word, always. It indicates that Israel's wandering from the Lord was not a temporary occasion. It was actually the constant refrain of their lives. And I'll tell you, if the constant refrain of your life is to go astray from the Lord, then you're not saved. You don't know him. This text proves that with the term ways of God. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But John Owen commented on this particular statement 
They always go astray in their heart. And here's what he said. This phrase has special regard to the affections and desires of their heart. So that to go astray is to err in heart through the seductions and impulsions of corrupt affections. And to have the mind and judgment corrupted. And then to depart from the ways of obedience. Once the affections and desires go astray, then the mind goes astray. Once the mind goes astray, then you've departed from the path of obedience. Wow, wish I could have said that. But that's what actually happens. Their straying was actually corporate. Listen, they is plural. They go away, they go astray in their heart singular. Does one man's sin affect the whole camp? You only need to read about Achan to find this out. Sin is a contagion. Their straying was corporate straying. And we all like unity, folks, but unity is good, but not unity in sin. Right? So the sin of one affect the many. Numbers 14.22 says, They tested the Lord ten times and refused to listen to his voice. They always go astray in their hearts. Defection. Defection from the Lord was the characterization of their lives. They did not know God's ways. You see it? They have not known my ways. What is, how would we define the ways of God? Well, it would be defined like this. The ways of God are his providence and his commands. It's his governance over all things and the commands that he gives for his people. So it is how he walks toward us and how we walk toward him. That's the ways of God. Do you hear this, young people? It's God's works toward you. That's called providence. He's in control. He does all things well. Right? And then it's his ways also concern your walk toward him as your God. Question. Was that generation aware of the providence of God and his acts toward them? Just think of this. Ten plagues. Red Sea crossing. Wandering in the wilderness. Shoe didn't wear out. Fed with manna, water was given to them. They saw the tablets written by God. In other words, there is an inviolable connection between going astray in the heart and becoming ignorant of God's ways. Please listen to me clearly on these matters. Your very life depends on what I just said. The very truth, if you're redeemed or not, depends upon those words. That inviolable connection between going astray in the heart and being ignorant of God's ways. They were not ignorant of God's ways because they hadn't seen God work. Right? They were not ignorant of God's ways because they had never heard God speak. They had a willful ignorance that had blinded them to the ways of God. That's what's going on. When the heart goes astray, listen, the life follows. There is a spiritual degeneration in our understanding and perceiving the things of God. And it will manifest itself in a total dislike of what is known. And you know this is true because we've all watched it. We've all watched people who once said they were in the faith that no longer believe today. And it's happened to this church. It may have even happened in your family. There's a refusal to trust and obey. 
If you go astray in your heart, listen, you will lack the ability to see his ways and see the works of God. How do you think a person goes from a state of belief to unbelief? How does a person go from a state of faith, they say they've had, to a state of unbelief? I want to tell you, it's, first, it's not first an intellectual path. It's a moral path. Is everybody listening to me? This is worth writing down and taking home with you. All right? You first start on what's called a moral degeneration, a moral, it's a moral path that you go down. When you have a young person that grows up and they're nurtured in the Christian faith, maybe like here at FBCO, and then they get out into this world, and there's all kinds of influences. You kids listening? They're going to school, and they're sitting under professors, and you go off to what I would call Babylonian University. Not in every case, but that's exactly what happened to Daniel. Do I have to remind you of Daniel chapter 1? When he had the best uh, professors that money could buy in Babylon. And they tried their best to do everything they could to remove his heritage. But when you go out and you're listening to teachers and you're influenced by other people, they go from a state of faith to unbelief. They may come back and say to you, well, it's just an existentialist thing. I just figured out in my mind I don't believe anymore. I'm a full-blown postmodernist, so I no longer believe. I, j- I just looked down at the Scripture and I thought, you know what? I don't believe in the veracity of God's Word anymore. There's just too many holes in the argument for me, so I'm just not going to believe it anymore. Now, that may be what comes out of their mouth, but that's not what the Bible says happens at first. What happens at first is a moral issue. Their hearts have gone astray. Pastor Albert Martin still lives to this day, and he's 90 years old. And you know what he used to do? He would have students come back to his church, and he'd begin to question them about their faith. And they'd say, well, you know, I'm just not quite where I was when I sat under your preaching and I was listening to lessons in Sunday school. I don't don't really quite believe that anymore. I don't quite believe now what I believed when I was a kid. And especially for the boys, he would look them dead in the eye and he'd say, what's her name? What's her name? Y'all get it? Moral. It's a moral issue. So here's the deal. Even a postmodernist does not like living as a total contradiction. So they got to give up one of them. They either give up what they learned in the Word, or they give up a lifestyle that's contrary to the Word. And when they look at that, they're like, you know what? I'm uncomfortable with that. I can't be a walking contradiction. There's a disparity. There's a disjunction. There's a breach. And everything that was once reliable is cloudy. And that breach causes us to no longer look to the ways of God. However, the Bible And understanding God's ways is actually what strengthens your faith and your courage and your confidence. Being ignorant of God's ways, growing out of a heart that's gone astray, is what erodes your confidence in the Lord. And that leads to straying. Proverbs says, he who is on the path of life heeds instruction. But he who ignores reproof goes astray. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you harden your heart to his voice today, you will go astray. 
When Peter was addressing false teachers in his second epistle, he says, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've gone astray in their hearts and therefore do not know my ways. So I want to address this. Often in the Old Testament, to know the Lord, we, that terminology is used, God's ways. God works toward us, providence. We, we respond to him in, in obedience. That's called the ways of God. The psalmist prays that God's ways, his faithful and true ways, would be disclosed to him. That's Psalm 25.10. God made his faithful acts ways known to Moses. Psalm 103, verse 7. God repeatedly revealed himself to Israel and was saying to them, he showed them mercy and love and grace. That's the ways of God. But despite God's ways clearly given to the Israelites, they didn't know God. That's serious. They did not know his ways. If you don't know his ways, you don't know him. Let this be a warning to the young and the old. Don't dabble in this world and flirt with the things of this world and start to uh, develop attachments to the things of this world and have your affections to this world. If so, it's going to affect your faith. Hear me. It's going to affect your faith. Don't be surprised if your faith is eroded to nothing so that you no longer can or will be willing to hear. That's a dangerous place to be in, isn't it? When you can't hear the voice of the Lord and you will not hear him. And to be in this place where you no longer trust the one you said you loved is a dangerous place to be in. Are y'all listening? Everybody? You're responsible for what you're hearing. You're responsible for what you're hearing. Today, if you will hear his voice. Today, right? So, when this happens, God is spurned, God is rejected, God is not believed. Where he's not believed, he's not honored. Where he's not honored, he's anger. his anger is provoked. That's a dangerous place to be in. Listen to the consequence. You ready? Here's how it reads. As I swore in my wrath, if they shall ever enter my rest. Did you know that every English translation has the word not in there? You shall not enter my rest. That word not is not in the Greek. Uh, may, M-A in English, would be what causes it to be a negative in its connotation. So it doesn't say M-A, may. So why is it that all the English translations put the word not in there? It's because it's an oath. So hear it again. Here's how it reads. I swore in my wrath if they shall ever enter my rest, dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank. This is a way to heighten the emphasis in such a way that you can't get a more emphatic statement. Uh, I'll give you an example of what this could be. In other words, the silence of the dot, dot, dot is the threat of all threats. Have you ever said this? Why I ought to fill in the blank. That's the strength Of what the writer is saying that God swore in his wrath. Hear it again. It's a figure of speech. Jesus will use it. I say to you if a sign be given to this generation. Dot, dot, dot. So here's the idea. You fill in the blank. I swore in my wrath if they ever enter my rest. Fill in the blank. You may say it like this. If they ever enter into my rest then I'm not God. If they ever enter into my rest then I'm not holy. If they ever enter into my rest over 
we may say it like this, over my dead body. In other words, this is strong and solemn assertion uh, of rigorous denial. It's emphatic and it's powerful. And the Lord goes from saying, I was angry with that generation, furious, provoked to wrath. And then he says, here's my oath, saying, they shall not emphatically enter my rest. Well, what is rest? When it was first given, it it had to do with land, did it not? Uh, It was land that was given. Now, Abraham knew full well that it was really never the piece of real estate that he was looking for because Hebrews 11 is going to tell you he endured looking for a city whose foundations were sure. Right? But at the same time, it was given to us in the word as land. And when you get to Psalm 95, guess what? The conquest is over. The occupation of the land is over. And yet, we're still told to enter his rest. And then in Hebrews, we're introduced again to rest. And here's what I would tell you. At this point, we're going to have to dig into that. But at this point, when you think about rest, they shall not enter my rest. One part means this. It's the idea of being still or settled down. And it's associated with with knowing the presence of God is with you. That's one root. The other one, you'll know this one, sabbat. Where you get the word sabbath. It means to end or to cease And it's used as the Sabbath commandment. So understand the force of the oath that God swore. Listen to this. If they ever enter my rest, or they will certainly never enter my rest, and that's the place of inheritance and blessing that I have prepared. That's strong. That's strong. They shall never enter into the the inheritance or the blessing that I have prepared. Did y'all know that when God gives his word, it's good? We need to be in the habit of believing the promises of God, but we also, with equal fervor, need to be in the habit of believing the threats of God. This is a warning. Don't take the teeth out of the warning. Hear hear me. Faith is a response ultimately to the character of God. It was a response to the character of God the day you trusted Jesus. And it's still a response to the character of God every day you live your life. That's what faith is. That's what you're going to learn in Hebrews 11. That's why all these men and women could do what they did in obedience to the Lord because they had faith in God, in the character of God. Let me tell you what faith is not. Faith is not confidence in a certain outcome. Faith isn't believing that certain things are going to happen. No matter how much you think your arm can grow back, if it gets whacked off, it's probably not going to happen. Faith isn't a positive Mental attitude. Faith isn't naming it and claiming it. Faith is responding to the character of God. Faith is responding to the character of God. And when we respond in faith to the character of God, hope springs, we sang that, didn't we? Up in us because of the promises of God. And if you look at the character of God and you look at it with faith and that's your response, then you consider the promises that he has made, then what springs up in your heart is faith and hope and confidence in the expectation that God is in control, which leads you in your life to a life of present obedience. The God of the Bible is completely reliable. To use a Hebrew idiom, nothing our God says will fall to the ground. 
You can take it to the bank. God keeps all his promises. So listen to the progressions. God's mercies and provisions in the past are designed to lead us to trust and hope in him in the future, which turns, which in turn leads us to a life of obedience in the present. That's how it's supposed to work, folks. That's called the posture of faith. And here's what I've learned in my life. The posture of faith will always make much of God. Not much of us. We'll make more, we'll make much of God if you're actually living in the posture of faith. It glorifies our God as trustworthy. Testing God is the complete antithesis. It's the opposite of trusting God but it, because it is us saying, God, I give you a vote of no confidence. Testing God is a terrible sin which incites the anger and provokes the wrath of God. So in God's fundamental commitment to his own character, he cannot allow his name, his word, his integrity to be distrusted. Those who test God are those who show that they do not trust the Lord. Here's what Thomas Schreiner says. Both the readers addressed in Hebrews and we must hear God's voice with faith. We should beware of hardening our hearts against God. A rebellious person puts the Lord to the test, showing that he doesn't know God since he doesn't know God's saving ways. So we're ending the sermon right here. Here it goes. Are we testing God? Are we disbelieving his word? Are we challenging his authority? Are we demanding things from him that if he be God, he must do for us? Are we willing or, or are we willing to look at his provisions in the past, look at his mercies, think about the cross, think about what's happened to you in your life, and that lead to a path of obedience in life where you can trust him. So, if it's the antithesis to that, and he's not trustworthy to you, that constitutes putting God to the test. Or, or are you honoring him, trusting his word, being confident in his promises, and living a life, here it is, of obedient faith. So if you desire to glorify God, if you desire to magnify God, honor God, that doesn't mean you work up something in yourself so that you can contribute to God as if he needed something that you could add to his glory. So let's go back and rephrase that. If you desire to glorify God and honor God, here's what you do, kids, older people, everybody. Believe God. If you desire to honor him, magnify, glorify him, believe God. Believing in him. And believing in him, you show that he is trustworthy and reliable. And there's no greater honor than this. Because out of this flows a life of obedience. If you truly honor him, if he's truly trustworthy and reliable, then you can obey him. You can obey him. His commandments are not burdensome, James, right? So, let this indictment of Israel's sins in the wilderness, this history lesson from the past, warn all of us, on the one hand, Dare not put the Lord God to the test, but rather respond in obedient faith. We started with a song. Well, we, we sang the goodness of the Lord, and then we, you heard he paid much too high a price. Let's end with another song, and we're going to do this one through its entirety. It's one of my favorites. It's called Good, Good Father. And isn't he? Do you live in the goodness of God? Oh, do you think about the ways of God toward you? If that's true, then you ought to live a life of obedience today. Does that make sense to you? 
I hope so. I hope you're thinking about what an obedient. He's trustworthy. We didn't only trust him the day we got saved. If the day you got, if the day you say you got saved did not lead to a life of trust and obedience in the ways of God, then you made a profession without a possession. It's highly possible to make a profession but not possess Christ. Right? And then on the flip side of that, you're not saved by grace and kept by your performance. That's what a lot of people believe. That's not what this book teaches. You're actually kept by the Lord. He preserves those he saves. Hebrews 10, 14. You've been perfected for all time. And this is what the writer is going to tell you over and over again. Here's the warning, but I'm convinced of better things. Why? Because those who are truly saved will remain faithful to God. Hebrews 11. Warning. Don't take the teeth out of the warning. How would you characterize your life as one living in the goodness of God and thanking him for that? Right? Good and bad. Thanking him for it. Let's pray. Lord God, help us in the time of invitation, Lord, to sing this song. And Lord, if there's people who would say to you, Lord, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a believer. I've trusted Christ, but I'm prone to wonder. Maybe as they sing the goodness of God, you're a good, good father. Maybe, maybe they need to make a trip down to the altar and just bow before you. Not, not an altar, not, not something we put on the front of the church, but you bow before you. And that can take place in their seat and say, Lord, you have been so faithful to me. How could I ever leave you? How could I ever not obey you and trust you in your word? And most importantly, how could we ever walk away from God's final word, Jesus? How could we ever neglect so great a salvation? For the people that the writer of Hebrews was writing, Lord, for them to walk away from Jesus was to walk away from salvation. Lord, I pray that you would let us sing to your glory. Let us reflect on your goodness for those who know you. And Lord, if, if there's someone that's lost, they have to start where everybody started. And that's faith in you. Simple faith in Jesus. That he's trustworthy. That he did exactly what he said he did. That he went to the cross and bore their sins in his body on the tree. Took their place that they may have his righteousness. Lord, may you save a soul if it's your will. And may you encourage believers. Uh, guide us, sustain us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
sing the rest of it think about how relevant that song is to your life young people just do this one time you'll be fine and your mind should race back to you're a good father you've been faithful right you've saved my soul that's who I am I'm your child God help me not to young people have sex before marriage I know that's not popular preaching people won't say that today I will sex outside of marriage is sin fornication is sin God Almighty has been faithful to you right so Lord help me help me bring every thought under captivity to your obedience right young older people we have all kind of temptations don't think you're gonna fly under the radar right God you've been faithful let that drive you. Your faithfulness in the past, your mercies, your provisions, they get a hold of your heart, and you, they won't let you go. And so as you live your life, you begin to make, you make obedient decisions. Why? Because he is a good father. Let's sing. I don't know where we are. We'll have to sing the whole thing over again. Let's do it. Listen. Oh, it's love so Praise the Lord. Aren't you thankful for forgiveness? Uh, I, I know I'm coming down hard on sin, but I, I invite you to come to the one, the Lord Jesus, who forgives sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west and then sets you on a path of obedience for the rest of your life. To God, Not to say you won't sin again. You will. I know you. The Lord knows you. We know ourselves. 
But isn't it wonderful to come back to Him, to turn to Him, trust Him, live obediently to the Lord? All right? Uh, Joe and Amy? Griffin? I got it right? Amen. Uh, They've been visiting our church for quite some time. They've gone through the new members. uh, Going Going through now. That's right. I saw you Wednesday. And so they want to stand before you today and tell you that this is the church they want to be a member of. They're going to come by. Both have trusted Christ. They both follow in believers' baptism. And they want to unite with First Baptist Church and church membership. Amen? So to God be the glory. Glad to have them. I had to go back there with James. And Joe and Amy will greet you going out. Our church family will. God bless you. So tonight we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper. So I hope you'll come back for that. And also, I don't know how many men you had in here, David, for Baptist Men's Day. 60 or so. 60 men practice a song called Knowing You, which we'll do Sunday morning. Uh, some of you bailed out and didn't <laughs> practice. So we're going to pull you up. You. Yeah, me. <laughs> I know the song. <laughs> yep. So Knowing You, uh, we're going to sing Sunday morning in the choir, all the men. And as many as possible will stay on the stage. And we have two testimonies, one from Brad Gaddy and the other from Ernie Stevens. So two testimonies. Uh, It's going to be a a blessed day to hear from those Baptist men and to hear them talk about their faith and the faithfulness of God. And we'll have some special music. Hope you'll be here next Sunday morning. Okay? God bless you. And then remember next Sunday night, a monumental time in the life of our church, ordaining our lay elders. So be sure and make put that on your counter next Sunday night, 530. God bless y'all.